Well, good evening, everybody. It's uh, a joy to be sharing God's Word anywhere, but uh, to share God's Word at home in your home church, there's just something extra special about that. And so I want to just uh, begin by giving a little bit of, of direction about what we're going to do. You notice that was a chapter of, of uh, First Samuel was read to us, chapter 15, just a few minutes ago. And I want to jump back from there and see that as a kind of culmination to what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so in some, I want to go back to initially chapter 8 and sort of skip through some of the chapters leading up to uh, chapter 15. So if you can go back with me uh, to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, uh, that would be helpful. And uh, I'm not going to read huge tracts of it, but make comment on various parts. And as I do, hopefully, you'll be able to sort of follow through uh, the, the scriptures as we, as we discuss them. Um, just a, a little bit of, of background and context to what we're talking about here. Um, at one time, the book of First and Second Samuel were all one volume, uh, and then at some stage it was divided into two different books. And uh, if you do read these stories there, you'll find that there are some remarkable events take place throughout all of both of the volumes. And it's, it's worthwhile certainly reading over and over to find what God has to say to us and our generation as a result of that. Uh, where judges and prophets of God would uh, lead the people of, of uh, God, lead the people of Israel, and they were God's direct uh, mouthpiece or intervention in the nation. And so we have, what we're reading about is, is initially a theocracy. God is in complete control and charge of the nation. The problem being for the nation of Israel was that all of the other nations around them had uh, kings. They uh, had some sort of monarchy uh, in operation. And uh, so when we start here, we begin in a place where God is in charge as a theocracy. And then in chapter 8, um, things begin to change. But looking back, you'll find some of the stories that are in this particular uh, book, uh, remarkable stories. Ones perhaps that you've heard as Sunday school stories, the story of Hannah, who um, was barren, couldn't have any children, and yet she prayed to God and she persisted before God, and eventually she became the mother of the boy Samuel. Samuel is dedicated to God in the temple, uh, and Eli the prophet uh, at the time takes responsibility for the boy and promises to raise him in the ways of God. Um, and he does so uh, over a, a long period of time. Uh, Eli had had less success with his own offspring. They had two sons called Hophni and Phinehas. And these two guys were uh, rogues and embarrassment. And uh, Eli was challenged about their behavior on a regular basis from, uh, from God himself, but also from the people saying, can you not do anything about these boys? Uh, they're a real problem. And uh, so we, we start off uh, here with a man called Samuel who became a prophet. And if you remember, uh, as children, if, you, if you've been at Sunday school, 
you'll have heard the story where Eli and Samuel are sleeping at night and God begins to speak. And Eli can hear nothing, but Samuel can hear God's voice very clearly and wonders if Eli is talking to him at night. And of course, uh, Eli has to tell Samuel that uh, in actual fact, it's not him who's talking, but it's God who's speaking to him and uh, instructs him just to respond. Speak, Lord, because your servant hears you. And uh, that's really the beginning of Samuel's walk with God, and he hears God as a prophet of God throughout the remainder of his life. He has, by all intents and purposes and everybody's standard, a very fearsome and fearful reputation. He's one of these guys who shoots from the hip. He doesn't uh, pussyfoot around with nice words. He uh, lets you know exactly what he believes God is saying. And he serves God impeccably over a long life, delivering God's word to the people of God on numerous occasions. The problem that he had and faced during his lifetime was that the people of God were rebellious and unrestrained. That, uh, throughout uh, the two books of Samuel, uh, you'll find that, uh, that that is the case. But in particular, in the early part of uh, 1 Samuel, the people are unrestrained in every way. And due to war with the Philistines, the Philistine nation was the arch enemy, if you like, of Israel for many, many years and right up until Today, I suspect, the enemy of the people of Israel. And they would come and there would be battles going on all the time between the two nations. And at one stage, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. Now, for those of you who understand your Old Testament history, the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God for the people of Israel. And so the Philistines came and took the presence of God away from uh, the the people themselves. And uh, one of the best things that happened to uh, Eli's sons was that he, uh, his wife actually gave birth to a child and uh, they called him Ichabod and that name just means the glory of God has departed. They were so upset by what was going on and they couldn't quite see what, that it was their fault or their, uh, as a result of the consequences of their actions uh, during that time. And so there was a long period of turmoil uh, throughout that period. And Samuel, God's direct mouthpiece into the people, the prophet of God, was in leadership in the nation. And he, with the people, saw numerous victories in battle, but also some real trouble uh, in, in and around the nation itself. And there is one particular sentence, if you like, that encapsulates the situation that Samuel found himself in. And it's taken from Judges chapter 8 and verse 7. It says, it's God speaking. And it says there, they have rejected me from being king over them. And that's a dreadful situation for any people to be in. And, uh, but in particular, the people of God, those that have been chosen, especially by God, the people of Israel. And so here we go. The, The story begins, the narrative of this situation begins to unfold to us. Uh, from chapter 8 through to chapter 15 where we read. As I said, the people of Israel were in deep rebellion and waywardness. They wanted to be as the other nations of the earth, the other nations that were neighboring them around about their country. They wanted a king. And for me, the whole process, this whole thing, 
is a matter, an issue of faith. To have God as our king, to have God as our authority, or to take that kind of responsibility away from him and keep it ourselves. It's an issue of faith. The psalmist in Psalm 84 said this, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to take my fate upon myself or to live amongst the people of unbelief. So we have a a challenge here for this people. They are faced with a situation of taking the responsibility for their lives away from God. And it's very much uh, an individualistic, personal, uh, Western perspective that we see uh, even beginning to rear its head in uh, this particular generation. So they want to have a king. They want to move away from a theocracy to a monarchy. And Samuel takes the situation, takes the problem, and he begins to commit it to the Lord. So at the beginning uh, of chapter 8, round about verses 4 and 5, Samuel approaches, is approached by the elders of, of Israel, and they tell him, look, um, we're fed up of the status quo. We don't like the situation we're in. We notice that all of the other nations around about us, they have kings who can lead them off into battle, and uh, we want to be like that as well. We want to be able to um, go off to battle with a king up in front of us. And uh, that's where kings were meant to be. They were meant to be in front of the army. Um, uh, as we'll see sometime later on, uh, Saul wasn't that kind of king necessarily. So Samuel is quite displeased by this request in verse 6, and, and he uh, goes to God with the problem. He faces uh, God and says, Look, what is going on here? What am I supposed to do? These people are asking for a king. And he's offended by that request. God tells him, look, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, It's not me. It's not you that are rejecting Samuel. It's me who they're rejecting. And if you check out these verses 7 to 9 and around there, you'll find that that conversation that Samuel is having is one of these sort of pivotal moments where God is saying, well, they... Uh, want this kind of thing. They've been asking for it. They've asked me through you for this, and I'm going to give it to them. And it's quite important that we understand that that kind of thing can take place. You've got to stop and ask yourself the question, who knows what's best for our lives? Who knows what is the most important thing uh, for us? The dangers of being the same as the world are quite conflicting into our lives. They they come as a conflict to us. We don't want to appear to be different, and yet uh, God says that we should be very different. We need to be identifiable. We need to be those that stand us apart from the others. We need to be different. But God says... I know what's best for you. And yet the people were saying, no, we know what's best for us. We want a king. And uh, as I was reading through this, I remembered that scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says this, that by faith Moses would rather suffer the affliction of God's people than have the pleasures of sin for a season. And that's what's going on here. It's It's a conflict of faith and sin going on in these people's hearts. It's not just a good idea. It's not just 
a problematic situation that will eventually disappear. This is a fundamental sin that these people have involved themselves in. And it's a key word that we need to remember during the time that we look at this particular situation. And so chapter 8 um, is quite key to the whole process. It's so easy for us to default to the human strength, human authority, human power uh, in these kind of circumstances, in any kind of circumstance. We find ourselves getting into difficult situations and we automatically default to a human perspective. And God wants to train us and lead us and show us how we need to rely on him to fight our battles, to deal with some of our problems. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 in the authorized version says this about God's people. He said, you're a peculiar people. Now you may have heard that phrase somewhere else in the New Testament. We'll come to that in a moment. But right from the outset, right from the very start, God says to his people, you're a peculiar people. Didn't mean that you were odd (laughs) and funny to look at, but he meant you were separated and set apart for uh, a purpose, easily identifiable. He repeats that in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and chapter 26. It's there in in the New Testament in Titus 2, but the one that we know uh, most is in 1 Peter 2.9, where it says that we are a people belonging to God. There's ownership there. God owns us. He wants us to be part of his. And that's a difficult thing for our Western mindset to cope with, because we say, well, I don't want anybody to own me. I'm free. And... uh, There there is freedom and freedom, and we'll see a little bit about that, hopefully, as we go through this evening. And so we in the church need to have Christ at the core of our lives, and not some sort of existential type uh, situation and philosophy trying to rule us, some sort of humanistic, uh, man-made situation either. Christ is our way, he's our truth, he's our life. The scripture clearly teaches that to us. And we don't get meaning from any other place. We are different from everybody else. We may look the same on the outside, but that's God. He looks at the heart. He looks in a different place from everybody else. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. So we have been purchased. We don't own ourselves anymore. And so here we have a situation where these people are coming into direct conflict with the Holy Spirit of God um, as he tries to lead his people. But there are consequences to their actions. And I want to pick up on a few verses here just for a moment. There are consequences to to their actions. And if we look in In chapter 8, verse 10, around there. We'll start off in verse 9. Now listen to them. This is God speaking to Samuel. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons. He will make them serve 
with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. And so on. And so he begins to say to him, look, there are consequences to having your own king. It's not just as straightforward as you might think. And so when we begin to take responsibility and take our own lives back from God, there are consequences for that as well. There are consequences to us uh, as people. Our lives are then in fragile hands and difficult hands when we take it back ourselves. And so we must remember that God knows what is best. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he gives the people a choice. He says to them, I'm giving you a choice today between life and death. Choose life. That's my recommendation to you. Choose life. And they had a choice to make then, and we have a choice to make today. And so we move on to chapter 9 very quickly, and we find that Saul is identified as king. And if you look at the the few verses at the beginning of chapter 9, you'll see what he was like. It says that he was a man of standing. And if you want to look at somebody to parallel uh, Saul's life with, uh, I would recommend that you look at the king who came after him, David, uh, King David. There was a man who had no standing whatsoever. He was uh, a shepherd. He was in the fields looking after the sheep. It wasn't his, his standing that God was looking for. And we'll find, you can find that out if you read on uh, as well through the book of 1 Samuel. Saul had all the right credentials. He had social position. He had a place in society. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with all of these things, but they need to be yielded to Christ. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so that was one of the, he was one of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin. Uh, his father, Jacob, um, had uh, loved his mother, Rachel. But if you'll find in Genesis 29, the story there, uh, the few chapters following that, that he was tricked into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah, by the girl's father, Laban. And he served for 14 years to, to get his, his wife, the one that he loved. And Benjamin was one of the, two, the sons of Rachel, the one he loved the most. And uh, Joseph was the other son, the elder son, and Benjamin, the younger one. And so Benjamin was a, 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 a well-loved tribe, if you like, one of the central-focused people and, and chosen for a purpose. But uh, they had been weakened over a period of time. The tribe had gone to battle and had lost battles, and there were so few people left that the men were allowed to intermarry with other uh, groups of people around the area and so uh, there was a weakening of their genealogy, but the only way they could stay 
alive, if you like, or remain in existence. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin. It says there he was impressive. He was good to look at. He was an impressive man. And this was to be probably the, the most central weakness of Saul's personality. What he saw with his eyes. And if you read through these few chapters, you'll find that Saul always appreciated things that he looked at. What was looking good? What was elevated in society? That was to become his downfall in the end. And then it goes on to say he was without equal. Visually he stood out. However, as we know, uh, God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And if you look at 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, you'll see that scripture quoted. And it was at the point when uh, Samuel went up to uh, anoint the following king, David, um, as king over Israel. And God, uh, and Samuel said, wait a minute, um, here's the one. Uh, and the, all, the, all of the sons of Jesse were lined up. And this great big strapping man like Saul was there, the eldest son. And he said, surely this is the one that should be king over Israel. And, and God said, no, it's not. There is another one. And then he said to him, look, it's not the outward appearance we should be looking at. It's the heart. And, and it's so key for us uh, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, as lovers of the living God, that we understand that God sees our heart and assesses our heart. And that's so difficult for us to comprehend at times because we think that everything that's in our heart is hidden. But in actual fact, God can view our heart and see our heart. And so it's important for us to know that. It's also this Jesus is described in Isaiah 53 as having no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so we need to realize that it's not about outward appearance. It's not about what we look like. And it's not to say that we should all turn up uh, on a Sunday morning looking as rough as anything. It's important that we dress ourselves and, and so on and so forth. But it's not about one-upmanship. It's not about trying to be smarter than the next person. It's not about trying to impress in that way. Our call to service has nothing to do with our social standing or our appearance or how impressive we are. It's about what's going on in our heart. And finally, it says there about Saul that he was a head taller than anyone else. And uh, that gives you an idea of how outstanding he was as far as the uh, visual appearance of the man. And uh, again, if you just want to jump forward to David's time and David came to deal with Goliath, if anybody who was able to go out and deal with Goliath in physical strength it would have been Saul because he was tallest in the whole nation. He was the tallest man, a head above everybody else. And uh, yet he stayed back in his palace when his people, when his men were being killed by the Philistines and by the giant. And so we come on to chapter 9 very quickly and we discover that uh, Saul is about to be identified and about to be uh, picked up uh, as the king, and, and he's sent out to look for donkeys. <laughs> Not a very positive start to his ministry, I have to say, because he lost them and he couldn't find them again. And he ran around all over the country 
uh, looking for donkeys, and uh, they were nowhere to be found. And uh, as far as his beginnings, the, the beginning part of his, of his life was concerned, it didn't seem to have a very positive part to it uh, in, in that respect. But of course, we need to remember that it's not about the start of our lives that's important, it's about the end. It's a good finisher God wants us to be. He, he, he says to us in the scripture, come in, good and faithful servant, come in and take your rest. It's something that we've done, we've been through, we've finished, we've run the race, we've finished the, the course. It's something that comes at the end. We need to be a good finisher. We need to finish well as far as God's kingdom is concerned. But here Saul was a poor starter, certainly, as far as that's concerned. So he, the other thing about Saul is it says there in chapter 9 that he eventually gave up. I think it's around about verse 5. That he eventually gave up looking for the donkeys. And again, he, he wasn't persistent. He, he had, uh, well, if it's not going to happen right away, then let's just go home and forget about the whole thing. And, uh, of course, we need to understand that that's uh, something that God wants to imply to us through that scripture, is that we need to have a persistence about us. We need to keep on going and not give up. In Luke chapter 9, it says in verse 62 that if we put our hand to the plow and we turn back, then we're not worthy of God's kingdom. And so we don't want to be a sprinter, but we need to be a distance runner. We need to persist and keep on going, no matter what. And again, if you want to uh, apply David's life to this as, a, as a, uh, a filter to look through, you'll see that David protected his sheep. David was the one who stood up against lions and bears. He didn't let them go missing. He didn't uh, leave them uh, to their own devices but he looked after them. And even when he had to go to the trenches to feed his brothers cheese and bread, it says in, in 1 Samuel that he left his sheep under the care and responsibility of somebody else. He didn't just walk off and leave himself. I've got a better job. I'm off to something else. He left the job uh, and, and the, the responsibility well. The Saul seemed to be a product of his generation. He was one of the products that came from the, the problems that Israel was seeing as a nation. He re responded to what was current. He responded to what he could see uh, right in front of him. He had no long-term view, it would appear, certainly in these early days. And God uh, had to speak to him through Samuel. And he would rather have a look at things and see them from his own perspective that, than approach Samuel to seek for help and to seek God and yet he had to do that and it was his servant who came up with the idea look there's a seer somebody somewhere close why don't we go and speak to him and uh, they did so but there's an interesting little point that comes up uh, in uh, chapter 9 around about verse 12 to 14 and it says that uh, Saul and his servant were going to try and find the seer and they approached the city and the young girls were coming to carry water and they said, where's the seer? Now a prophet of God at that time was called a seer because they could see or hear from God. And uh, the girls said, well, he'll be up uh, on the mountain and he'll be sacrificing before the Lord. But this, she said, the people will not eat until 
he has blessed the sacrifice. They won't eat it until he's blessed. Now, that's very important to, to Saul uh, and, and part of his activities later on. Because you'll find out in chapter 13, I think it is, that he went up himself and sacrificed before the Lord and couldn't wait for Samuel to come. Oh, he's late. Let's go on with the job here. And he sacrificed the animals and tried to um, get the, the show on the move, as it were. And, uh, of course, that all went horribly wrong for him. We'll maybe pick that up later on if we've got time. And so here we have this man who is being identified, and yet there are flaws in his character, and yet we can discover that he's a product of his generation. Now, that's not a problem. We're all products of our generation. We're all here as part of the generation in which we live. That's not necessarily the issue. The issue is what do we do about it? How do we approach that, and how do we live our lives? And so, in chapter 10, we find that this man is anointed as king. And it says there that in verse 9 of chapter 10 that his heart is changed. God changes his heart. And again, God is trying to reach into this man and deal with the problem. The problem is his heart. It needed to be changed, just like all of us, just like you and me. Our hearts need to be changed. And Saul was in that situation. He needed his heart changed. It's a necessary step for all of us who want to serve God and to be involved in ministry in Christ. We need to become a new creation. And the cross is the point at which that new creation is brought about, is dealt with. There's a hymn which I discovered. My wife uh, gives me real trouble for going into second-hand shops and books and whatnot. And uh, I discovered this book, um, of Wesley's hymns. And I want to read very quickly one of the hymns to you with regard to the cross. It says here, O Jesus, let thy dying cry pierce to the bottom of my heart. Its evils cure, its wants supply, and bid my unbelief depart. Slay the dire root and seed of sin. Prepare for thee the holiest place. Then, O oh, essential love, come in and fill thy house with endless praise. Let me, according to thy word, a tender, contrite heart receive, which grieves at having grieved its Lord and never can itself forgive. A heart thy joys and griefs to feel, a heart that cannot faithless prove, a heart where Christ alone may dwell all praise, all, meek, all meekness, and all love. You see, it's important that our heart is changed, that there is a place as we come to the cross that our hearts can be revolutionized and turned around. And that's what was required for Saul. His heart needed to be changed. And so we come on into chapter 10. We discover that even though his heart had been changed, even though he had prophesied with the prophets, even though all sorts of things were happening towards his kingship. He was about to be presented before the people, and Samuel said to him, let's get all the tribes together. So they brought the tribes together, and then they pulled out the tribe of Benjamin, and then they pulled out 
um, the family of Saul and then they wanted to try and get Saul to come up and stand in front of the people. And when they went to find him, they couldn't find him. He disappeared. And it says there that they found him hiding amongst the baggage. He was scared to come forward. He didn't want to um, be promoted in that sense. And so here was a man who had human frailty and uh, real problems. He was hiding. And so we need to be aware that God is, is, very, is very aware of our um, frailties. But again, that's not the problem. We all know that we have frailties. That's not the issue. It's, as I say, so easy for us to uh, take on the responsibility for all of this ourselves. And then we move on very quickly into chapter 11. There is a man there, a, a, a leader of another nation. His name is Nahash the Ammonite, and he offends God and God's people. And it's almost like God switches something on inside of Saul, and he receives a holy anger about the situation, and he goes out and deals with the Ammonite nation. And that whole process uh, confirms him, as far as the people are concerned, as the most wonderful king. And out he goes and he destroys the Ammonites. And uh, when he comes back, the people think he's wonderful. One good thing he does do is that uh, during the process of, of his life, he had gathered a number of enemies even within his own uh, city and amongst his own people. Um, and he's able to um, show mercy to them at that time. So I suppose there are some good things that came through as a result of a changed heart within the man. Then the process, there's a long period, and it says in, in chapter 13 that Saul reigned over the people for 42 years. And uh, Samuel then gets up to address the people again. There's all sorts of difficulties, all things that have, have taken place in the intervening years. But Samuel addresses the people and he announces that he's going to retire. <laughs> I'm going to take the pension as a, as a prophet. I'm sorry, time's up. I've had enough of this. If he only knew what was about to come, uh, perhaps we wouldn't have said it so quickly. But anyway, um, Samuel says, look, um, I'm, I'm going. And uh, he appeals to the people at the same time. It's almost like his, his retirement speech, if you like. Um, he appeals to the people to remember God's interventions in the history uh, of the people of Israel and consider their ways. Look, you've lived lives which have not been glorifying to God, you need to change. And uh, he's talking to them saying, look, it's not too late. There is still an opportunity for you to change. I think it was George Eliot who put it like this, that it's never too late to become what you might have been. And uh, that's important for us to realize that as Christians, when things don't go well, and we have been involved in things which are wrong, that there is a point we can come back to. We can come back to the cross. We can come back and repent of our sins and turn away from our wicked ways. And it's never too late. As I say, a good end is better than a good start. We don't want to start off and then fizzle out like a flash in the pan. We need to continue on in God. But the situation here is that there's a major sin has gone on. The people have asked for a king. They've taken a king over God. And God has been 
overseeing that and supervising that, if you like, and looking from a distance into that. But they begin to understand. They begin to see that in verse 19, they, they see that they've gone the wrong way and they need to come back again. They need to deal with it and they begin to ask for forgiveness. And Samuel uh, remains faithful in all of, the, uh, all of that. And he said, look, I will pray for you and I will continue to pray for you as a nation. And he takes his responsibilities very seriously. Again, another thing that we need to be aware of as we look at this. I want to move on very quickly because I know time is almost gone. But eventually Saul's kingship becomes null and void in chapter 13. And uh, his decline begins to be on a very rapid scale, if you like. He goes downhill very quickly. And uh, Samuel reprimands him and strips him of his position as king during chapter 13. The process of the end of the end, if you like, has about to take place. Chapter 14, we see Jonathan coming in, Saul's son. Don't have time to go into that, so we'll skip over that one very quickly. And then in chapter 15, Saul is rejected as king by the Lord. If you look back to the consequences that we spoke about earlier on uh, in chapter 8, the consequences came to home to roost. You see, consequences are not just like fast food. We do something today, we get the consequences today. Well, in some cases, I suppose that can be the case. But there are times when consequences take a very long period of time to work themselves out. In fact, God says that the sins of the fathers will be visited on the third and the fourth generation. Sometimes consequences take a long time to come out. And it's only through Christ that we can deal with that. And so there's been a buildup of events that has brought this situation to a conclusion. And we see it in chapter 15. And I just want to very quickly look at that before we finish. God wants to, at the beginning of chapter 15, God wants to punish the Amalekites because of what they did to Israel. And then he sends out, uh, Samuel sends out Saul to deal with uh, the Amalekite nation. Now, whatever you think of the process, and how we deal with the process, that's another matter. But the situation is this, that Saul was given a job to do. It's almost like it was his final test. And he failed it miserably. You'll find that it says there in verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Now he was told to put everybody to death, to deal with the whole lot, everybody, everything. Um, and he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Remember what was said about, Paul, about Saul. He, he liked those of high standing. He came from a place of high standing himself. He looked at things, he saw they were good, and he kept them. And so he kept the king alive, thinking, well, I suppose I'm on a par with this king. I'm a king as well. Maybe there's something that we have in common. But he totally destroyed with the sword of everything else. Then it says, and Saul and the army spared Agag, the best of the sheep and cattle. He looked for what was good, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These he was unwilling to destroy completely. Everything that had been despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And so you can see that flaw in his character beginning to come to the surface even more here in this situation. 
He never, throughout that whole process, right through to the end of his life, it's very rare, I think, if ever, that Saul went to the prophet of God and asked uh, for advice or to, to change the situation or whatever. He's, he took the whole responsibility on himself. I'm now the king. I'm going to do this. And we can be very much like that. We need to come and ask God to help us. And for me, all of his flaws of his character, I have them. We all have them. They're there for us very easily to, to uncover and see, perhaps. The issue being, what do we do about it? What do we do with these flaws of our character? They're there and we have got to face them. But the important thing is that we bring them before God, that we take them to the cross, that we see God deal with that situation. It's almost like you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, go and give all that you have to the poor. And he went away sorrowful because he couldn't do it. Because he saw his resources, his, his life more important than the instruction that Jesus had given to him. And uh, well, maybe I would have been the same. What would I have done in that situation? Well, perhaps the best thing for him to have done was, well, Lord, I don't know how to do this. Please help me. And I think that's a very important part of this whole process, is to come back to God again, is to return to him and say, what do I do in this situation? Please help me. And uh, that is a point, a contrite heart that God will not despise. He will come into our situation. He will help us. He will show us the way. And so this man, Saul, had very much an opportunity, but he began to blame other people. He said, oh, well, I did carry out the Lord's instructions in verse 13. But he was deceived. He was deluded. He didn't at all. Then he started to blame the soldiers. The soldiers brought them, verse 15, and from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. So he removed the responsibility for himself. Then he says something really significant. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle and sacrificed them to the Lord your God. Not to the Lord my God, but to the Lord your God. You notice where he has gone now. He stepped out of the whole situation. Now the Lord God is not his God at all. And that is very evident in his life. And so there's lots that we can gather and garner from this particular story. But for me, the key point is A, that we don't take the responsibility of our lives away from God totally. That we don't say, Lord, this is my life and I'm going to live it my way. It's so easy for us to do that because our Western world teaches us to do that. But God says, no, I know what's best for your life. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I want to carry you. I want you to cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. That's what he's saying to us. Now, there's so much more that we could go into in this, but I'm going to stop there and ask that somehow that uh, as, we, as we hear God's word, that we can respond to it and deal with these issues in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. And we ask you, O God, that by your Holy Spirit, you will lead us to hear 
and to respond to the words that you've spoken to us. That, Lord, you will identify those areas where perhaps we need to come and respond to you, where we need to give you our lives back again, where we need to be carried by you rather than stealing the responsibility away. Father, we can say, like the psalmist said, we'd rather spend a a day in your presence than to take our lives and our own responsibility. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in us and through us and in this congregation. And we ask that your blessing would come in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.